Our scripture reading this morning will be from Galatians 2, verses 19 through 21. In this scripture, Paul writes, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Before Randy brings... When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. That expression might be somewhat familiar to you, but you may not be very familiar with the context for that scripture. It actually is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we sometimes call the love chapter. You know, when you go to a wedding and they read a a scripture, it's usually 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, that beautiful description of godly love. And yet tucked away in that description of love is this little verse in 1 Corinthians 13 about moving beyond childhood. And Paul uses this verse in this idea of moving beyond childhood as an analogy. His whole point is sometimes we think that the talents, the gifts, the abilities we have, that they will last forever, that they identify us, that our worth and our value is found in those things. And he says, no, no, those things won't last Those things will not endure. Love will endure. Those things will fade away, much like the reasoning, the thinking of children. And don't you find that to be true? As great as children are, and we all love children, at some point in time, we were all children. (laughs) We appreciate children. But we all know that children's thinking isn't quite developed completely that children don't have it all figured out, that their realm of experience is somewhat limited, their intellect is somewhat limited, that they think often in concrete terms and and in difficulty, they have difficulty processing abstract ideas. We all understand that. I know that's true. I remember being a kid. I remember some of the things that I thought were important. I remember some of the things that I thought were true. I remember thinking because someone told me if you cross your eyes they're going to stick that way forever so I thought you don't want to cross your eyes if I saw someone crossing their eyes I thought oh buddy you're in for a life of cross-eyedness right there you know you'll never find a job because you'll be cross-eyed your whole life that's what I thought as a kid you know as a kid you think if you tear off one of those tags off your mattresses you're going to get in trouble the mattress police are going to come and find you I remember thinking as a kid when my brother and I broke a light fixture in the house and we cleaned up the glass that our parents wouldn't notice, that somehow they wouldn't notice that that was broken, that there was a light bulb hanging from the ceiling. In my childish mind, I thought, sure, that makes sense. They won't ever look up. They'll never see that. I remember as a child, I didn't know the difference between a blender and a mixer. And so when the recipe on the side of the Whoppers carton said, you put these chocolate molten milk balls in a blender I put them in an open bowl mixer and turned it on high 
You can imagine. I know now. <laughs> but boy, it was a mess. There were molten milk balls flying all over that kitchen. You see, we, we think things as a, as a child. We think certain things are important. We think certain things are true. And as we grow up, we realize that there's more to the story. We realize that our childish thoughts don't always survive or endure when scrutinized by reality. And here's the problem. The problem is when we carry that over into faith, into the realm of spirituality, so often, unfortunately, we never move beyond that. So often, we don't mature beyond our childish faith. And we view faith as concrete. So give me my list of do's and don'ts, and that's my limited view of faith. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. When we have a childish faith, we become the consumer. And I view everything through that lens. I I view worship through that lens. I view the Christian life through that lens. I am the consumer. And so if something doesn't please me, if it doesn't feed me, if it doesn't make me happy, then it must be wrong. It must be not ideal. You see, that's very childish. When everything's about what I can receive, what I can get, rather than what I can give and sacrifice. In the very next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul would say, move beyond that. Don't be children in your thinking, he says in verse 20. Move beyond this childish way of life, this childish faith, because there is a difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. Jesus said, become like children. He didn't mean by that, have a theology shaped by childish, consumeristic, selfish attitudes. And so we're starting this series called Moving to Maturity, moving beyond a childish faith or theology, moving from a consumer to someone who sees his or her role in the kingdom as a giver, one who sacrifices, one who carries his or her cross, who denies self, who notices others and blesses others, who sees himself or herself as a channel of God's forgiveness and grace and blessing. How do we move to that place? It is a lifelong process. And so during this series, we're going to talk about some of those benchmarks, some of those marks along the way on this journey. What does it look like, this life of discipleship, moving beyond a childish faith to more of a mature faith? And by the way, this series is what we put on those little bookmarks that we introduced last week for the Discovery Bible Study. And so this would be one set of Bible texts to use when you're having this Discovery Bible study with someone. If you're saying, what is Discovery Bible study? I wasn't here last week, or I was here, but I've slept a little bit since then. I don't really know what you're talking about. We're going to be talking a lot about it, but come back tonight. Come back at five o'clock tonight. We're going to describe it in great detail. I really think that God can use this one little tool 
to transform our congregation and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I hope you'll come back tonight. But if you get one of those bookmarks out in the lobby, you'll notice that this series is on one side of that bookmark. And so this would be the material, if you will, for one of those series of Bible studies. So what does it look like to grow in our faith? What does it look like when discipleship is happening in our lives? Where does it begin? Where does it start? Well, it starts with a decision, a decision that we all have to make. It's a decision that some of you have made, many of you have made, maybe some of you haven't made. It's a decision that every person in this world, when confronted with the truth, when confronted with the gospel, has to make. It's an extremely important decision. Maybe you saw on the news that the fast food giant Burger King is in a little bit of hot water in Belgium. They're opening the fast food chain there, and to promote the opening of the restaurant, they have this little gimmicky advertisement. And so they put the mascot of Burger King, you know, the Burger King, up against the king of Belgium, King Philippe. (laughs) And they have this saying, two kings, one crown, who will rule? Vote now. (laughs) Well, you can imagine the royal family didn't think much about that. They didn't appreciate that one bit. But I think this silly ad brings up a very interesting question, a very important question. Now, obviously, in the context of burgers and fries, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. But there's a larger question here. There's a question that has eternal implications. When you think about the spiritual realm, when you think about the realm in which we live and function, this becomes an extremely important question. Two kings, only one crown, who will rule? Who is going to rule your life? Who are you going to allow to govern your life? To whom will you submit? Because you will and you are submitting to someone, something. There is something or someone on the throne of your heart and your life. You are submitting to something or someone. And maybe it's you. Maybe you are the king of your life. Maybe everything is about what I want, what I need, what I have planned, what I'm doing and where I'm going. For many people in this world, that's exactly who sits on the throne of their heart or their life. But this is a question we all must answer. And that's the beginning point of discipleship. Deciding who is going to have authority over my life. To whom will I submit or surrender? Will it be me? Will it be the world? Will it be the evil one, even if I don't admit that's who is the king of my life? Or will it be the anointed one, the Christ, the king of kings? You see, that's the question, and that's where discipleship begins, with that decision, that choice. And so when we go to God's word, and when we see in the first century the church exploding, the church growing, people sharing their faith, and people believing in this man, Jesus, but more than a man, this son of God, the Messiah, the one who was raised to life. 
When people believed that, they placed their faith in Jesus. They stood at that crossroads facing that decision, to whom will I surrender, to whom will I submit? And they said, Jesus. I will give my life to Jesus. And so the church is growing. People are coming to Christ. The kingdom of God is advancing, but it's not happening without resistance. There is persecution because many of the religious leaders, especially of the day, of the Jewish people, they don't like this story. They don't like this movement. They thought they got rid of Jesus. And so those disciples, those followers of Christ who are spreading the gospel are enemy number one for many of the religious leaders. In fact, a man named Stephen, who is proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is killed. He's martyred for his faith. And when that happens, the text tells us that the disciples were scattered. Many of them left Jerusalem, and they were scattered out among the surrounding lands. But as they went, they didn't stop sharing the gospel. They continued to tell people about Jesus. And so we meet this man named Philip, and Philip leaves Jerusalem and goes to a place called Samaria, which is significant because now we see Christianity is reaching beyond the Jews. Now Samaria, who, by the way, was looked down upon by many of the Jews, they are receiving the gospel, the good news. So Philip is there, and he is converting people. He is preaching and teaching. People are coming to know Christ. And so Peter and John go join him there for a while, and then it's time for Peter and John to go back to Jerusalem, so they go back. But God has a different plan for Philip. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now you need to know there were two roads that went from Jerusalem through Gaza. The city of Gaza was destroyed in the first century B.C. or so, but they rebuilt the city closer to the coast. But the old road that went from Jerusalem to the old Gaza still existed, although no one used that road really. My guess is it was overgrown a little bit. There wasn't much access to it. And yet that's where this messenger of God, this angel of God, told Philip to go. Why? Was it just a random choice? Was it just stay out of traffic? What was it? No, God knew that there was someone on that road who Philip needed to encounter. There was someone that would be on that road who needed to hear the gospel. This was a divine appointment. This was the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. This was God arranging and orchestrating things so that someone who did not know Christ would come to know Christ. And so Philip obeys. And he goes down this road and he encounters a man, an Ethiopian. He's an Ethiopian eunuch serving as a high-ranking official in his land's government or his land's royal court. In fact, he is in charge of the finances. We would call him the secretary of the treasury, probably. And so he is a person of, of power, of influence, of status. He is from Ethiopia. Ethiopia was on the southern part or south 
of Egypt, this large kingdom. And to the Greeks and the Romans, Ethiopia was the outer limits of civilization. It was literally, literally to them the end of the earth as they knew it. And so when Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, probably what they heard was, oh, you mean all the way to Ethiopia? And that's where this man is from. And yes, he is a high-ranking official, which means he has some level of prestige, some level of maybe affluence. And yet there's something missing. There's something missing for this man. He seems to be longing for something deeper, searching for something. Why do I say that? Because he has made this long journey from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping the Jewish God, Yahweh. Well, he's not a Jew. In fact, as a eunuch, he can't even go into the temple. He can't even join in the Jewish assembly. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And so he is on the outside looking in, but there is something about it. He wants to get as close as he can. He wants to encounter as much as possible this God that he's heard about. And maybe it's one of the Jewish festivals that brought him to Jerusalem. And he goes there to encounter Yahweh God. And now it's time to go home. So he's on his way home. But he's reading from the book of Isaiah. It's significant that he has a scroll of Isaiah. Especially as a Gentile. As someone who is non-Jewish. The fact that he owns or has possession of of this scroll is significant because it wasn't easy for a Gentile especially to to get one of these you know we have Bibles everywhere right well obviously it wasn't that way back then and so yes maybe he goes to Jerusalem for the festival but it's not like there's a souvenir shop and right next to the mugs with a picture of the temple on it and the t-shirts oh look there's a scroll of Isaiah I think I'll have two of those no it probably cost him a lot of money He was able possibly to secure this scroll. Maybe he already had it, but maybe he got it in Jerusalem. But he's reading it on his way home. And he's reading a passage that we know is about Jesus. But he doesn't know what it's about. And that's the person God directed Philip to. And so Philip encounters this Ethiopian reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. And the text says he runs up to him. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. We know this passage is a prophecy about Jesus. But for this Ethiopian man, he had no idea. This wasn't his prophecy. This wasn't the prophecy of his people. Even the Jewish people 
to whom this prophecy did belong couldn't agree on what this was talking about. What is this sheep led to the slaughter? Is that Israel? Is he talking about all that Israel has gone and will continue to go through and be persecuted? Or is this about Isaiah himself? Is he the sheep? Or is this about our much-anticipated Messiah? You see, for the Jewish people, they couldn't even agree on who this was talking about. But Philip saw this as an opportunity. Philip knew that he was put there by God. This wasn't just a random encounter. This wasn't just, oh, how you doing today? How's the weather? The weather's good. Boy, how's everything else going? Great. Okay, well, have a good trip. No, Philip said this is an opportunity. I mean, a gift-wrapped opportunity. This man is reading about Jesus and doesn't know it's about Jesus. And so Philip begins to tell him about Jesus, about the lamb was led to the slaughter. Verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news or the gospel about Jesus. You see, Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, to the people who knew the Scripture well, you look for truth in the Scripture, but those Scriptures testify to me. And Philip enacts this very truth. He says, let me tell you about that sheep you're reading about. Let me tell you about this lamb that Isaiah was prophesying about. It is Jesus. And here's who Jesus is. Here's what he did. Yes, he gave his life like that lamb to the slaughter, but he did it for you. He did it so you would have eternal life. And so this Ethiopian man hears the gospel and believes the gospel. And now he has a decision to make. His chariot is on the side of this deserted, dusty road, but his life is at a crossroads. Which path will he take? Will he take the path of Christ that leads to eternal life? Or will he take the path to self and world? the same old life. What will he do? Verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? This man made his choice. He heard the good news of Jesus. He believed the good news of Jesus, and he says, I want to respond. Obviously, Philip had told him what it meant to believe and be baptized. And so the the man says, there's water right there. Let's just do it right now. Because I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus. And so they pull the chariot over. The text says that both men get down into the water. And Philip baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. Imagine that. A Gentile from the end of the earth who couldn't even go into the temple, into the Jewish assembly, is welcomed with open arms into the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are told that the Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing. You see, his life has been forever changed. He has great joy. 
Just as we celebrate when someone is baptized and we affirm through saying amen or through clapping, we celebrate, we rejoice. This man does the same thing. In fact, many of the early church historians say that this Ethiopian official was the very first missionary, if you will, to Ethiopia. That he not only was rejoicing, but he went home proclaiming. And that the church began there because of his efforts, because of God working through him to advance the kingdom, to share the gospel. So this man encountered the gospel, responded to the gospel, and then became a joyful messenger of the gospel. You might say that he was a disciple making disciples. You see, that's what happens. When you surrender your life to Christ, God resets your life. He reorders your life. He changes the course of your life. Nothing is the same. And it all begins at that crossroads. Just as we have a decision to make, this man had a decision to make. Two kings, only one crown. Who is going to rule? To whom would he submit? To whom will we submit? And when we make that decision, it forever alters the course of not only our lives, but our eternities. Discipleship begins with surrendering your life to Christ. You die to self, and you live for Jesus. He becomes Lord of your life, and you conform to the teachings of Jesus, and you exemplify the heart of Jesus and his character in your life. But it begins by yielding, by submitting, by surrendering. I mean, think about the very act of baptism. It is an act of surrender, right? You're in one of the most vulnerable positions you can be, and you have really no control. Someone else is leaning you back into water, and you hope (laughs) that they also lift you up out of the water, right? Paul says in Romans 6 that when we are baptized into Christ, we reenact the death, dying to self, and the burial in water, and the being raised to new life. It's an act of surrender. But it's not just a symbol of surrender. It is the beginning of a life of surrender. Romans 6, verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you used to let sin have authority in your life, you used to let selfishness take over, and rule your life. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. I like that word, your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Paul says, when you make that decision to give your life to Christ, to put your faith in Christ, when you are baptized, reenacting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ... Your allegiance, then, is to him. You know, that word Christ, it means the anointed one. Who were the people who were anointed? Kings. 
I heard someone, a friend, actually, just about a week ago, talk about how we use Christ as though it was Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's Jesus the King, Jesus the Anointed One. And when we give our lives to Christ, we are saying, I pledge my allegiance to you, first and foremost to you. I surrender my will to you. In fact, we even sing that song, don't we? I surrender all. I'm glad they put that all on there because truth be told, a lot of us would like to sing, I surrender half. (laughs) I surrender a fourth. I surrender some, God, when I feel like it, or God, when things are going good, or God, I surrender most everything except this one thing I just can't hand over to you. Allegiance means everything is his, that he is Lord of our lives. We surrender our relationships. We surrender our goals, our dreams, our jobs, our careers, our money, our time, our effort, our recreational time, our hobbies, our free time. We submit and surrender everything. We surrender our conflicts our disagreements, our brokenness, our past, our struggles. We surrender all. That's where it begins. And as you know, and I know, that is a lifelong journey, a journey of surrender and sacrifice and commitment. Minister Bruce Larson tells a story about when he was a minister working in New York City. He had an office downtown, and sometimes people would come and talk to him, and they were struggling with this decision, with this idea of surrendering their lives to Christ. They just couldn't take that step. They just couldn't take that plunge. They struggled, and so he would talk to them, and he said, oftentimes I would say, hey, let's, let's go for a little walk. Follow me. And he would go outside of his office and he would walk down Fifth Avenue to the RCA building. And in front of the RCA building is this huge statue of Atlas. This strong, picturesque figure. And as you know, maybe you've seen this with your own eyes, certainly you've seen pictures, you know Atlas is holding up the world. The weight of the world is on his shoulders And as strong and as mighty as Atlas is, you still see some struggle there, don't you? And Larson would say, as as they looked at the statue, he would say, that's one way to live your life, with the weight of the world on your shoulders, with you trying to manage everything, with your allegiance being to you and to you alone. Yes, you have other allegiances to family and nation and other things, but the bottom line is, The one that sits on the throne of your heart and life is you. He says, that's one way to live your life. He'd say, but let's walk across the street. And they would walk across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they would go inside this old cathedral, and they would find up at the front this little statue of Jesus as a boy, maybe eight or nine years old. And in his hand is a little orb, and this orb represents the world. And Larson said, or you can live 
this way. Placing your faith in Jesus, the one who holds the world in his hand. Now, you and I may say that seems a little strange to have a statue of Jesus. It seems a little odd. But the point should not be lost. The point should not be lost. We stand at a crossroads. Two kings, only one crown. Who will rule your life? Discipleship begins with surrender. With surrendering one's life to Christ. Will you surrender your life? Will you make that choice? If you've never made that choice, will you make it today? And if you have made that choice, maybe long ago, maybe more recently, will you continue to renew that commitment to surrender all? Will you surrender all? If we can help you surrender all. If we can pray for you. If today you want to be baptized into Christ, we would love to celebrate that with you. We invite you to come as we stand and sing. All to Jesus I 